thank you so much for for taking the time to talk today. Oh yeah, I, I'm actually um, probably more excited to be talking to you actually, even though it's your podcast, because <laughs> I have really loved um, uh, just your engagement on social media. Honestly, it's one of those things where it's almost gleeful. Anytime I see post something, I'm just like, oh, okay, I want to see where this is going because it's um, you really have a great way of uh, you frame your arguments well, first of all, which is not always something you see on Twitter. Mm. But the other thing I really appreciate is that you can be very pointed, but you don't do it in a way that's excessively antagonistic. Um, I see some people where it's pretty much the tweet is like 90% snark and then 10% substance. But even when you are being pointed, I, I always see something worth engaging. So anyway, just I've always enjoyed uh, what you put out there. And, and so this is fun for me to just be able to talk to you uh, personally. So thanks for sure. having me. Well, well, that's very kind. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm it's probably a bit too gracious. I know I probably, uh, you know, maybe it gets away from me every once in a while, but I, but I, but I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah. So originally I, I asked, well, my purpose in asking you to come on the podcast was to talk about things in your expertise as an old Testament scholar, vis-a-vis uh, -vis justice and perhaps talk a bit about racism in the Asian American context. And my sense is that probably for obvious reasons that that ratio might be reversed. And in fact, if you just want to talk about sort of things that are salient to recent events, that's perfectly fine with me. As I told you in my direct message, the whole purpose of the podcast is to just have conversations with people I think are interesting and just let them talk about what they're passionate about. So I do want to at least address a little bit of kind of the original reason, you know, you want to talk to me, which is as someone who is uh, an OT scholar, what's my perspective on the question of justice, since that is really such a, it's such a relevant conversation in a lot of different circles. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're in more progressive or conservative um, Christian spheres. It's a, it's a topic that is uh, really, in some cases, inflammatory. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to kind of give a little bit of a perspective, because I'm going to be honest, I don't know if people who engage with me only through social media realize um, that I probably am more conservative than they they probably want me to be, <laughs> if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Um, so I, I am at Dallas Seminary, and I think people are aware of where Dallas Seminary kind of sits within oh. the spectrum of various like Christian institutions and, and then even within evangelicalism. Um, I am very at a very interesting place as far as that term evangelicalism. I don't know that I would call myself an evangelical, um, not because of any of the doctrinal commitments necessarily, but just because at this point, I think it's become such a culturally and politically fraught term. I just don't know if I want to be a, um, to really enter that uh, with that kind of identifier. But I am very much orthodox in my faith beliefs. Uh, a lot of my doctrinal uh, positions would probably be well within the center of like conservative evangelicalism. And yet 
I think what surprises people who interact with me, uh, whether it's in kind of this context or maybe even on social media is, I, I think I come across as much more progressive. So I just wanted to give a little bit of how that's even possible. So when I say I'm, I'm probably more conservative than people realize, I, what I mean is I have a pretty high view of scripture. I have a, a view of uh, scripture that is, I think most would describe as an inerrantist. I have a lot of conservative uh, doctrinal commitments when it comes to things like uh, conversionism. So basically like the Bevington quadrilateral, I, I think that that's fine for me. So if that were the technical definition of evangelicalism that we were going by, I'd be okay with the term. But at this point, I just don't think that's what people are thinking of when they hear that. Right. So that being said, then people might wonder then why are you so vocal about things like Black Lives Matter? Why are you so vocal about things like uh, socioeconomic inequities? Why am I so conscious about the way uh, certain groups are treated in society, things like that? And it's because I believe it is actually so biblical to feel that way. And so if I could kind of sum up in a nutshell, like my thinking on that, it begins in the law. Uh, and what I mean by the law is like the technical, the Pentateuch, you know, the, the division of the Hebrew Bible that actually speaks to the codified and, and given revelation regarding Israel's establishment history and then its laws. And I see, I, I think it's very clear there, actually. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm sometimes shocked at how controversial these things can be in some circles, that the Lord has an incredibly wise disposition towards the different groups of people that are under his care. And so Nicholas Walterstorff's uh, Quartet of the Vulnerable is now a very popular catchphrase, and I think it's a great way to look at it. And he talks about these four groups that the law repeatedly not only groups together, but actually always gives this sort of preference to or partiality towards. It's the poor, uh, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. You see it in like Deuteronomy 10, you see it in like Zechariah 7, and there's other places obviously. But what you see emerge when I look at the law is a pretty consistent pattern where the Lord recognizes in the land, there's always gonna be a certain group of people that are to a degree marginalized, disenfranchised, whatever you wanna call it. And when you look at the common denominators, because widows and orphans, you can kind of see the, the link, uh, but the foreigner seems like an outlier there. And, and then the poor kind of seems like an outlier, but actually the, the common bond they all have is they don't have land. So I think the mm -hmm. land is such an important theological concept in the Bible. You know, Walter Brueggemann does fantastic study on the land in the Old Testament and then people in the NT world who study like Hebrews and, and the book of Hebrews, like the epistle to the Hebrews, will talk about uh, this concept of finding rest in the land is also a really important theme. So what I see going on is you have this larger sense of Israel's nationhood is so tied to its landedness. So even though God promises Abraham this nationhood to his descendants, it's not until Moses, the Mosaic covenant is established and you see the conquest begin that you see that as in a sense being at least partially fulfilled. So land is so important to the identity of Israel as a nation because they were numerous in Egypt, but they weren't considered a nation because by ancient Near Eastern standards, they weren't really, they didn't have the classic characteristics of a nation. So they had numerous people, 
an ethnic identity, but they didn't have land. So that was uh, the, and then the later thing that would come later is monarchy, but that's a little bit later in history. So when I look at the quartet of the vulnerable, what you see is a group of people who are very different socially, and yet the thing that binds them is they don't have land. Uh, so when the widow loses her husband, her claim to the land becomes very precarious. Orphans don't have a claim to the land because they're not part of a family line because everything in Israel uh, was mandated to be kind of like through family lineage and inheritance. Um, so I see it on two levels. It's, it's really wonderful, kind of almost poetic. So Israel as a nation and as a people, as a covenant people, don't find the rest until they're in the land. So the land becomes this hallmark of the Lord's blessing and the Lord's uh, grace. And then at the individual level, you see it. Uh, if you're wealthy and you have land, you have this security that's not only for your generation, but you pass that on to your children. Uh, so when you look at who doesn't have land, these are the people that are largely going to be absolutely disenfranchised when it comes to justice at the gates. They're the people who the rich and the uh, powerful will find ways to exploit every time. A great example is the, the principle of Jubilee. So there's, you know, the law of Jubilee and the Day of Atonement, how every 50 years. So, But it's clear within scripture that there is supposed to be, and this is what I, on a side note, I love this about uh, the Torah. People keep kind of talk about how, oh, the Bible just condones slavery. And I said, well, I think you got to nuance that. That's a very... Um, that's kind of a simplistic reduction. The truth is, I know everyone's beaten to death that slavery in the Old Testament is different from chattel slavery. And I think that's a valid point. But I think the other thing is we sometimes kind of gloss over that the Lord built into his legal code that there was going to be a regular emancipation of, of slaves. And in Deuteronomy, he says, you don't just let them go free, you bless them. And he knew this. It's all wisdom because if you are a slave because you're poor, uh, which is the debt slave was the most common form of slavery in Israel, it just makes sense that if you send them back out free but poor, they're going to return to that estate at some point. But the Lord tried to provide for that. He says, make sure you send them out with material blessing. And then, and then you did have even, you know, provision for those slaves who felt like, actually, I, I kind of like it where I am. You know, this situation is actually good for my family. I happened to luck out and I ended up in a good situation. Well, then you can stay. The law gives you provision for that as well. So when I look at the Torah, I see so much wisdom, like practical legal wisdom. Um, and it's, it's remarkable because people will point out, oh, well, other ancient Near Eastern laws did have uh, emancipation in it. But I said, well, that was more subject to like individual king's whims, like there might be a king who comes along and to curry favor or consolidate power. He might pronounce like a, an emancipation. But the, the Bible is the only place I really see this like systematic institution of emancipation, you know, on a regular basis. And what that tells me is the Lord never intended for there to be a slave class in Israel. Um, he understood that slavery, debt slavery at least, was a practical form of dealing with a really human condition, a, a, a sinful condition, which is um, the poverty of the poor in the land. So that brings me to my second point. That is that we misunderstand the poor, especially in conservative evangelical circles. We really butcher this concept. We take a few passages in Proverbs that talk about the sluggard 
And then we extrapolate entire doctrines about poverty from that. And then what we do is we miss that the majority of references to the poor throughout scripture, even in the New Testament, are talking about a class of people that the Lord assumes. And he never attributes to them a moral, ethical reason for their condition. He talks, you see again and again, the poor in the land. The poor will always be with you. And what he is expressing is in a fallen world, the reality is that wealth will never be evenly distributed. So there's always going to be this group of people that get left out in that. And they're going to exist. And unless I, as uh, this sovereign deity, can institute some ways of commanding their protection, they will be forever exploited. So the majority of what I see in the Old Testament is protection for the poor. It's consistent through all three parts of the Bible, the Old Testament. It's like in the law, it's instituted systemically. People hate that word, but it's true. In the writing, yeah, that's why it's in the law. It's not up to, as you say, like it's not up <laughs> right. to a king to come along and say, all right, well, you know, next Wednesday, we'll just emancipate all the slaves. No, it's, in, it's built into the rules. Yes, exactly. And it's and and the Lord in His wisdom makes it something rhythmic almost. So if you do, if you follow this, it won't be so disruptive because it's built into the program of society. Uh, but obviously, later in the prophets, we find out they never observed it. They just that was one of the reasons that the Lord says you are going to into exile is because over and over and over again you have proven that you will not obey me. And that's the other thing is it's in the writings. So in the writings you see that those who are praised in like the, the wisdom literature, whether it's in the Psalms or Proverbs or, or, or even in the narrative sections of the writings, it's again, there is a high value placed on those who follow the Lord and care for the poor or for the widow or for the orphan or the foreigner. And then you see it in the prophets, clear as day. Now you're getting the retrospective view on this, what law looks like in Israel. The prophets are the back end of the Old Testament history. Now they're looking back and saying, we failed. We miserably failed. It's not a northern kingdom thing. It's not a Judah thing. It's universal to the entire group of both kingdoms. And it begins with the king. So some of the, some of the time, one of the pushbacks I, I have heard is that, oh, what we tend to do with the prophetic literature is we take these verses out of context. And there's some fairness to that critique because some of those prophetic um, oracles were specifically addressed to certain people. They weren't always universally given to everyone for, in, in a general sense. So sometimes the prophets were speaking to a certain king or a certain ruling group. That may be true, but I do think it's still fair to bring out what the gist or the um, maybe the ethic of those you know, pronouncements of judgment were about. So I have a, I think something that's unique to what I've kind of been developing is I also see this in the covenantal structure of the Old Testament. When you begin, uh, so I, I know there's other covenants, but I'm going to begin with the Abrahamic. So what you see here is the kind of the seed of the, the God, God's covenantal kind of historical outline. And, he, and he's promising Abraham, hey, you're going to be the father of not just a nation, but many nations. And, and then we see as that, uh, that narrative develops between Genesis 12 and 22, that the Lord then adds in, and, and kings will come from your line. And finally, when that 
Abrahamic covenant kind of comes to like full form, we see that kind of the high point of that promise is, and, and out of your seed, you will become a blessing to all nations. So I see in there, I think it's very appropriate to see some Christological significance in that. So what you have now is like the pronouncement of this plan, but now the rest of the Old Testament then gives you kind of how that plan uh, is going to be developed by God. So then the Mosaic Covenant's the next major one. And in that, you actually do see the at least the nation portion of the Abrahamic promise crystallized. I see the Mosaic Covenant is very much a constitution. It's, it's Israel's constitution. So it is the Lord making this covenant with his people. And, and when it comes to the Abraham Mosaic, and this was kind of part of my dissertation um, research, I, I realized I think we use terms like unconditional and conditional. And while they're not terrible terms, I think irrevocable and revocable are better because I actually see elements of conditionality in every single covenant, just as I see elements of unconditionality in every covenant. In every time that God makes a covenant with humans, he's, there's some elements where he's like, hey, this is contingent on what you do. Your response matters. And then there are other aspects where it's like, no, this is my faithfulness. So this you can bank on. It'll, it'll be true no matter what. And so I see the Abrahamic covenant is more irrevocable than unconditional because when God tells Isaac why he chose his father, um, he says, it's because your dad was uh, essentially a Torah follower, which was anachronistic because at the time the Torah still hadn't been given. But I understand what the writer of Genesis is saying at that moment. He's saying that even though the Torah wasn't codified, Abraham exemplified like a Torah follower par excellence. So that's why he was worthy of that. So that's very conditional to me. The mosaic is often seen as totally conditional because it seems like blessing and curses are all contingent on Israel's obedience. But then at the very end of the mosaic covenant, like literature, whether it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you do see these, they're very kind of minor in terms of the corpus, but they're significant because God tells Moses, point blank, you're going to break these. Like, I know you're going to do it. You're actually going to get scattered to the, the, the ends of the earth because of your disobedience and covenant failure. But I will bring you back. And when I do, you will be restored into a unprecedented place of blessing and prosperity. And so that's, that's very unconditional to me. Uh, not, it, and so I look at the Mosaic Covenant as maybe revocable, but not necessarily just conditional, because there's an element to it that God is saying, this part is on me. And so this part, which is what explains like the post-exilic history. I mean, how else would you explain that this nation gets brought back from exile and restored, even if it's not in the way that we would expect? So then you see in the Mosaic Covenant, the law given. So now, kind of God's plan for uh, the nations through Israel is starting to form. You can now see the substance of it because it's, it's being given. It's being written and re revealed. And that's where we see this concern for this quartet of the vulnerable. That's where we see this concern for equity. And we see this concern for righteous rule. And the, the term righteousness in, in scripture is so inextricably tied to the concept of justice. It's the same word, essentially. Um, so you see it codified in the mosaic. So you might ask, well, what about the Davidic covenant? What does that have to do with this? It actually makes sense because one of the things that the, you know, the idea of seed that Abraham is given in his promise is 
there's this kind of ambiguity intentionally. It's, it, is it, are we talking about the people of Israel or are we talking about an individual? And in the Davidic covenant, you start to see that corporate identity uh, bring that out a little bit. Yeah, it is the nation that has to be righteous, but guess what? I'm going to put it on your king to be the one who spearheads that. And so then God makes this promise to David that your house I will establish into perpetuity. And, and one of your descendants will always be on this throne. And his rule will be marked by righteousness or justice. Uh, and then finally, you have the new covenant. So Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a couple of these later prophets are going to say, well, in the end, God was right. You are going to fail and you did fail. So, but here's the thing. It's not hopeless. God is about to do this amazing thing that you could never have imagined. He's going to make a new covenant. So the new covenant is um, the language clearly indicates that it's a replacement or of a fix of the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic. So God's not completely wiping the slate clean. He's saying, I'm going to take over at this point because it's clear that the human contingency did not work. Um, but I already foresaw that. And so now the new covenant is going to bring all these things with messianic expectation. And that's where we see all of this coalesces beautifully in the New Testament because Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Uh, so if he blesses all nations, that's absolutely a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. He's also an Israel, a, a son of Israel. So his understanding of justice is defined by Torah. And there is never a point where Jesus contradicts the law in his entire public teaching. In fact, he affirms it. I mean, we know well how he says the greatest commandments are to love the Lord, uh, the Shema, and then uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I am the one who was prophesied, the chosen, the anointed one, the Messiah. And my role is to not abolish God's work in history. It's to fulfill it because all this time it's been leading to me. So I see this wonderful covenantal kind of, uh, kind of undergirding. So it's like the girders that hold up a beautiful structure. And, and so when we talk about Jesus as just personal savior, it's too limiting, it's too reductive. He is also Mashiach, you know, the anointed one. So he represents this Davidic line. He represents the hope of Israel. And, you know, Isaiah talks about this suffering servant. And, and in Jewish um, interpretation, they often will really emphasize that's the nation. The nation is who God uses as the redemptive agent in the world. And so the, that's who the Jewish people are. And I see how they can come to that reading of, of Isaiah. But Again, if, if you do take Jesus for who he is, it actually makes sense of the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord even. So when I look at Jesus' teaching, he does not get rid of any concern for justice. In fact, if anything, he embodies it. I, I love like the little hints of it, like the, his interaction with the Samaritan woman, the Syrophoenician woman, um, the way he elevated the poor uh, he spoke about the widow giving the two mites. And we often read that story as a um, wonderful tribute to this super generous poor woman. But it's actually kind of a con condemnation of the rich, too, if you look at it in context. Oh, yeah. um, then there's the widow of Nyan, where here's Jesus traveling. He's in the midst of just kind of his ministry itinerary. 
And then there's this widow who is mourning the loss of her son. So really, she qualifies now as uh, kind of like a double level in terms of Walter Storr's Quartet of the Vulnerable, because she's already a widow. So kind of her uh, status in society is very precarious. But now she's lost her son. And I'm assuming the son is probably not little. So now she's lost her livelihood because now the, the, the one person who probably could have provided her at least with some security has died. So she's mourning, it's a funeral procession and Jesus goes out of his way and he raises this, this man to life or this young man. And we don't talk, we talk about Lazarus, we talk about the synagogue leader's daughter, but there is this other resurrection story there in the gospels that we kind of pass over. But I love that one because it's very much Jesus being like a justice minded person because in his in that moment he and here's another catchphrase he's very he empathizes with this woman it wasn't like in the plan but he goes out of his way say hey i'm gonna go and take care of her because i see someone right now who is just so vulnerable and it breaks my heart so so anyway that's kind of my spiel you know so when people say ask me like you're you're an old testament teacher you you research it uh, that's kind of your specialty and and you're at a pretty conservative place and, and you know, uh, the church where I, I teach at, it would be considered pretty much, even though we don't identify as evangelical, we would be very evangelical friendly. And yet they're always surprised that, you know, justice concerns are such a big part of my emphasis. So I hope that kind of puts some framework to why I think the way I do from the perspective I come from. So, yeah, I mean, in evangelical, like conservative evangelical subculture, you, you see a high view of scripture often opposed with uh, concerns around justice. And I think one thing that I don't, maybe you could comment on what, why, the, why there's such resistance to the idea that, but no, 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 I have my, my concerns around justice are not despite my high view of scripture, but rather because of my high view of scripture. Well, and I think this is where uh, it gets a little bit more, you know, controversial because I really do believe at this point to really understand this, I so appreciate the work of um, sociologists and historians because I don't think you can really understand this weird dynamic apart from understanding the history of Christianity in America and the unique position that, um, that America's racist uh, kind of history has in terms of how it has shaped every single institution, including the church. And so I really do think that part of this resistance to seeing these concerns in scripture is actually not biblical, but rather sociocultural. It comes from being part of this historical stream in which, um, you know, uh, so I, I, I love this, um, the published doc, uh, dissertation by Mary Beth Swetnam, Doctrine and Race, because it was this wonderful study of uh, historical documents related to the Black church um, between Reconstruction and like, I think, World War I, I believe. And what she found was that the black church was incredibly conservative theologically, but they were also very progressive socially. And it was almost because they had to be. I think we have given such a bad name to the black church within conservative circles because of our racial 
commitments. We are so afraid that if we give Black theologians and Black churches a full place at the table of what we consider to be Orthodox Christianity, that we would then be forced to confront our demons when it comes to how we have wronged the Black church and how we have wronged, in the larger sense, the Black um, population and, and, and misunderstood their history, misunderstood who they are as a people, and, and hurt them as image bearers. And so, you know, but the Black church has been incredibly faithful because in during that time, there was really a push among the more neo-Orthodox uh, and even liberal Protestants to try and bring the Black church alongside them because they felt like at least on social issues, we, we were very much in sync, which was true. And that's where the Black church was very resistant. They, they refused to give up on some of those commitments, like a high view of scripture and, and the deity of Christ and, and things that we hold dear, the Black church held firm on at that time when it would have been so easy for them to go along with the more of these liberal Protestant churches and movements because they shared social concerns. So they did the opposite of what a lot of conservative white evangelicals accuse them of doing. Which Absolutely. is they put their theological commitments ahead of what would have what what may have been sort of um, politically advantageous. Absolutely, yeah, that's what she found. I mean, and she was really it's it's really a great dissertation because it's just very much just a a look at the the documents. They they looked at church writings and bulletins and and just what what were these black pastors talking about and saying and and yet the black pastors absolutely also fought against joining the fundamentalist uh, reaction at the same time because they said as much as we agree with these guys when it comes to certain theological points they are absolutely killing us when it comes to who we are and where we are in society and so I really grew in my appreciation for the Black church tradition because they stood in a really difficult place because it really was kind of like, uh, you know, fools to the left of me, jokers to the right, you know, it was, um, they just didn't know. And so they just stood firm. And so when they talk about Martin Luther King as being this uh, liberal Marxist, I think that recent historians have done a nice job of helping recover how Dr. King was a little bit of the product of his academic kind of uh, context, but that when later in life, when he preached, when he taught, it was clear that he had really kind of either recovered or just never had lost, but just refound the voice to just go with the faith of his fathers. It was a very, you know, it was a very traditional faith that he expressed, at least in his, you know, practical, you know, teaching and speaking. And so I, I think that, you know, in evangelical spaces, I kind of come, came up through this. We vilified the Black churches. Oh, they were so liberal that they were, you know, you really can't learn anything from their theology. And I, uh, so in recent years, I've gone back and I've tried to read more uh, things like James Cone and uh, Baldwin and, and Thurman. And, and what I found is there may be some like points and nuance that I, I don't always agree on, but by and large, I find myself really being edified by their teaching and really appreciative of their faith. I think what you see in evangelicalism is they are so conscious in a subconscious way of what would be at stake if they were to really start to interrogate the history of their activism, their political allegiances, 
But I think deep down, there's this kind of primal understanding that we lose our hegemony, we lose our place. If we were to really take scripture seriously on, because the Sermon on the Mount is not this wonderful, fuzzy feeling in the, in the gut type of sermon. Jesus is preaching this incredibly like counter-cultural, you know, kind of politically dangerous uh, sermon there. And, and, you know, he talks about the poor in such terms that it doesn't, I don't know how you can endorse any kind of social system or institution that exploits them, you know. Yeah, so I really do think that you cannot separate um, the evangelical struggle with the concept of justice from the American history and how significant racism and white supremacy play a role in shaping every single institution. So I wonder if you might talk about racism in the American context, specifically with respect to the context of Asian Americans and and that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that, Scott, because I think that is, boy, I hesitate to even say this as a bright spot or a silver lining, but one thing that I'm thankful for in the wake of the Atlanta tragedy is that I am finally seeing like more um, public discussions about a history that I think a lot of Asian Americans have always known, but it was never centered. So when I think about anti-Asian racism as opposed to general racism, a couple of things come to mind. I think it's different from anti-Black racism or general uh, white supremacist racism in that we are, uh, there's a couple of ways in which the tip of the spear kind of specifically hits us where we are weak. One is xenophobia. So I think the history of anti-Asian racism is defined by, I think, two things, xenophobia and invisibility. So um, going all the way back to the very first Asian immigrants, um, and I think this even precedes, like, uh, most people are familiar with, like, the Chinese railroad workers. And it's really a just a glorified form of slavery. When you go back and really look at that history, what you realize is that the coolies and the Chinese immigrants, um, they may not have been chattel slaves in the technical sense, but it was for, for all intents and purposes, a form of slavery. Um, the way they treated Chinese women, for example, not allowing them to come over other than in sex trafficking type of scenarios. And it was because they did not want these Chinese workers to populate in America. And so they bring them over, they work them to death, literally in some cases, but they don't let them marry white women. So the miscegenation laws were still in place for Asians. And yet at the same time, what they do is they don't allow Chinese women or Asian women to come over. And it was because they absolutely knew exactly what they were doing. It was social engineering in a sense. They're saying, we want you for your labor Um, out here on the West Coast, for whatever reason, we don't have the same number of black workers that we could draw on. So we're going to bring over these Asian guys and they're going to do the work. And, And, you know, so what you see is already the history of Asian immigration begins on a, on an absolutely uh, evil note. It's, 
it's exploitation, it's marginalization. They're kept in these uh, kind of ghettos within those West Coast towns. That's why to this day, there's a Chinatown in San Francisco. It's kind of a sanitized tribute to the ghettoization of Asian populations there. Um, and then you saw that uh, it's the yellow peril. So the, the kind of rhetoric surrounding Asian people was they're exotic, um, males are effeminate, uh, women are fetishized, and they're good for labor, but uh, because they're more docile uh, than, and than Black people are, so they make a better labor force, easier to control. So all these type of stereotypes just kind of take root. And to this day, you see it. Uh, I mean, that you can see it traced in the popular culture, even in just the subtle rhetoric that just kind of surrounds Asian American people. And then you saw with the Japanese internment during World War II, absolute double standard because the German uh, immigrants who were in America were not interned, even though they were very much at the core of the Axis powers that we were fighting against. It's like, for whatever reason, it's like, well, those Japanese people, we've got to put them in camps because we can't trust them, even though they've been here for a couple generations and they, they, they're, they're like English speakers. Uh, they're very much Americanized and yet they couldn't be trusted. Whereas the German immigrants, even the ones who still spoke German. And even German POWs. We had some absolutely. German POWs who, right. were, who were basically like let to just sort of like roam around town during the day. <laughs> right. right, and, and, and you know, if, if that doesn't really help you kind of see what sociologists have been talking about in terms of the concept of whiteness, I don't know what what's going to convince you, you know. Um, so yeah, so you those are the more well-known historical points. So those, I think, if you're a fairly decent like K through 12 curriculum, you'll at least maybe get a little mention of those things. But boy, I grew up in um, Dallas for my second half of my childhood. So my childhood was split between Ann Arbor and Dallas. I don't remember ever learning those things. Um, uh, as a Korean American, I just kind of had to learn on my own uh, where Asians have fit in history. And um, even the history of like Asian American activism, like a lot of people don't know that at all. In fact, I learned some things during that when PBS recently did their little mini series on Asian Americans. It was fantastic. I was so edified to learn that Asian Americans were not this silent, invisible, emasculated group that they were trying to be on the edge of the activist wave in the 60s. It's just that history tends to erase them or marginalize them. Um, even the concept of Asian American is kind of racially fraught. So there are, depending on who you talk to, as many as 30 different distinct ethnic or national subgroups of Asian peoples in America. Um, you know, we're most familiar with the East Asian contingent, like Chinese, Japanese, and now Koreans are more recognized, but there's actually as many as 30. And so, um, but we, it was intentional in the 60s to start using this term Asian American, because what these Asian activists realized was on their own, they just would never have a voice. There just wasn't enough Japanese Americans or Chinese Americans, even though there were many. Um, and if you were like Vietnamese or Cambodian or Hmong or Korean at the time, you had no voice, whether at least in politics. So let's, let's gather together and kind of marshal our forces and try to at least form a coalition. 
But here's what's really complex about this. Um, within that coalition, there's a lot of just historical tensions. You know, Chinese and Korean peoples have always had a little bit of like this kind of cultural tension because the Chinese have always viewed themselves as kind of um, the center of civilization. In fact, they have this view from a global perspective. They think of themselves as really kind of the apex. The Japanese have that same exact view. Now, the Koreans never felt this way because we have always been this stepping stone country that was always in between everyone else's like imperialistic kind of like wars. But so Koreans have their own kind of insecurities. And then you have the tensions between like the Taiwanese and Chinese. Like so a lot of people think they're the same people, but they're not. They're, the Taiwanese uh, have this Formosan kind of heritage. And so now there's a lot of mixed heritage folks there, but they are distinct, at least ethnically from Chinese people. Um, so anyway, there's like a lot of intramural like tensions within the Asian culture. For example, I remember when I was a teenager in the 80s, my dad was adamant that we would never buy a Japanese car. And that really was hard for me because I wanted a Honda so bad because they were such good cars. And yet he was just like, no, go get yourself a Chevy. Uh, they helped us in, in the Korean War so we can buy an American car, you know, things like that. So it's getting better. I think the younger Asians really have gotten past a lot of those historical tensions. But um, anyway, it's just just not, I, I just don't think a lot of people know this about the Asian American population, that there's just like a lot of rich history there. And, and then so then um, people, I think the other thing I really want people to better understand is the, the absolute evil of the model minority myth and why it exists. So the model minority myth um, is something that is so enticing for Asian Americans to embrace because who doesn't want to buy and believe that you really are better than other people. So the model minority myth though is based on an absolutely racist kind of foundation. It's that the more you assimilate, the better you are as a immigrant population in America. So in the sixties, there was a huge uh, change in the immigration laws in America it allowed for this new wave of immigration from Asia. So up till this point, up till the 60s, I was illegal. Like I, I just was, as a human, I was persona non grata in America. But then they started wanting to do kind of a brain drain because they realized now that the now that Korea and Japan had rebuilt and they were starting to see them rise as emerging economic powers. Uh, the American government was like, well, you know, now we can take those people. They're no, they're not as dangerous now, and they're they're more productive now. So my dad um, was allowed to immigrate to America as part of that wave. Um, and here's what I tell Asian friends who really struggle because they want to buy the model minority myth: if you curate who you allow from any particular population you will always get better results than if you just have a more organic establishment of that population uh, in, as an immigrant population. And, and so the people who came over from East Asia as part of that legal immigration wave were largely two things. They were either educated or rich or both. And here's why the government was okay with it. It's because if I come over as a Korean family and I'm rich or educated or both, 
I am less likely to end up on welfare or become a strain on the system. So it's a high, high probability gamble by the government that this is gonna pay off. Cause the downside would be this family comes over and then they end up failing and they end up on welfare. Upside is they come over and succeed and become taxpayers and maybe even high bracket taxpayers. And for the most part, the gamble worked for a lot of the East Asians. Here's where you can see this play out in real time in a very illustrative way. In the 70s, you had this wave of Southeast Asian immigration, but it was because of refugees, because of the war in Vietnam, because of all the upheaval in Cambodia and Laos. So I remember, I'm old enough to remember this. I remember seeing this sudden influx of Vietnamese, Asian, and, and Cambodian, Laotian, and Hmong people coming into America. Uh, for example, Houston was a huge port of entry for the, these refugees. A lot of people wonder why there's such a robust Southeast Asian population in Texas. It's because they came in as refugees um, as part of the boat people wave, for example, and then they never left because they found Texas, especially South Texas, to be so amenable, at least in terms of climate. So a lot of these families just settled. And that's why we have such a robust like Vietnamese community in Texas. Um, so anyway, that's, and when you look at the disparity between this group of two groups of immigrants, it's stark. Uh, so when people say Asians are some of the most successful immigrants or population in America, and they always point to people like me and say, oh yeah, you guys all, every one of you has a doctorate. Every one of you is either a doctor or an engineer. You guys are all rich. Um, you guys are all doing well. You send your kids to good schools. I say, okay, but have you looked at all the other Asians? And, and what you find is that in the Southeast Asian community that largely came in as refugees, this was not a curated immigrant population. They had to bring everyone over, whether they were educated or not, whether they were uh, rich or not. And so a lot more of what you see is there's an incredibly high rate of poverty among certain Asian subgroups, whereas there's more success in other Asian subgroups. So, and that's, it's completely explainable. That's the thing. You, if I, I again have to keep telling my Asian friends this, we're not better. It's just that we were able, they were able to select who came over for us. We just had a better chance to succeed because they were kind of, there's poverty back in Korea. There is social unrest back in Korea. So if you brought every Korean, like if you brought more of a general cross-section over, you'd see the same thing here. So. Well, it and there was almost that there was there was almost uh, sort of the opposite opposite kind of selection process for Southeast Asian communities, right? Because yes. who's most That's likely right. to be a refugee? It's going to be people who are vulnerable, Absolutely. right? And they show up and they have no money, no resources, okay. no family, no nothing. Right. Right. Yeah. So they were they they hit the shore and they were immediately in need of like government assistance. And unfortunately, what we have found is that the government doesn't do a great job through welfare of getting people out of poverty. We've already known this because of the history with black and brown populations. And now we're seeing it play out with Asian populations. Southeast Asians who have now been here for two generations still lag way behind the East Asian immigrants that came over in the 60s. You say that in South Asians as well, Indians, for example. Again, they were largely allowed to immigrate legally because of the same criteria. They were either wealthy, educated, or both. And so they're doing really well here. And, and so they're also some of the folks who have a hard time buying into things like Black Lives Matter 
And, and it's because my parents' generation, a lot of the successful Asian immigrants, they really do buy into this model minority myth. They are convinced that, oh yeah, I think it's, we just work harder, we're just smarter and it's not true. Um, so I, I see the model minority myth as especially wicked because what it does is it pits these different immigrant groups and minority groups against one another. And that's why there's such, the LA riots um, and, and what the tragedies that happened in Koreatown, um, there is a really stark history of anti-Black racism in Asian communities. And it's because we have been boxed into this kind of uh, zero-sum scarcity uh, culture uh, as, as minorities. So I either have to hate and destroy Black people and brown people so I can succeed, or they have to kill us and, and, and get rid of us for them to succeed. And this is why you saw this kind of like initial wave of Asian racism uh, was based on this re reality of social reality where when people said it seemed like all these Korean businesses were in black neighborhoods, there's a lot of truth to that. And it's because that was the only place these first wave Korean immigrant businesses could be set up. They just didn't have the capital or they were redlined out of the nice neighborhoods. And so they had to put their liquor stores and their dry cleaners and their beauty salons and stuff in these low-income neighborhoods. And it automatically was just a powder keg. It's just human nature because now the black communities feel like, how come our businesses aren't here? And so we look like parasites. And in some cases we were, we behaved as parasites and we exploited the black customers and things like that. And on the other hand, like the, the black community then, but also um, they never really fully accepted a lot of those businesses as their own. So it's this really fraught, tense relationship that's been building for generations. And so I understand why among young uh, Asians, there's still this kind of like, you know, hesitancy to embrace like Black Lives Matter because they're, they're the ones who like, my dad was killed by, and during a break-in and it was the guy who did it was Black. And how do I tell that person like, well, that doesn't matter. You still need to go and embrace like black people and support them. And I also get the black people who are really angry and resentful of Asian Americans because the only Asian Americans they've known are the ones who came in and exploited their community. So I hate the model minority myth, but I also hate the way kind of there's this white supremacist kind of hegemony that just pits all of our communities against one another in kind of this weird, you know, social hunger games, you know. Um, yeah, because in, in, the, in the hierarchy, right, um, uh, that's been sort of uh, ingrained in, in society uh, very, very intentionally, um, if the folks on the higher rungs of the hierarchy can get folks on the, on the lower rungs or the medium rungs sort of all arguing with each other, right, then, uh, then, well, I mean, I guess y'all are preoccupied with that. Yeah. 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 And, and then, so I saw this a couple, you know, I don't have the exact details, but I just remember there was a story that broke. I think it was at Duke where a professor kind of called out uh, how, why can't the, you know, black and brown students be more like these Asian students? And what he meant by that was he looked out and saw in general, like that there were guys like me who would be in these classes and he would notice, even though we were clearly foreign to him anyway, we had names like 
David and Paul and John, because it's kind of a, a running joke in like Korean American circles, how we all have the names of like famous biblical figures, because when our families came over, they knew where power was in America. And so they wanted their sons and daughters to have American names. They didn't want us to go by our actual Korean names because it would be hard for us to assimilate. So they made us play Little League Baseball. They gave us names like David, Paul, and John. And they hoped that what that would do is put us closer to where the power was, which they didn't know anything about like critical race theory. They were just being incredibly pragmatic. They knew that white people had money and white people had power. And so as they came over, they looked at ourselves and said, you know, we're close enough. I think we can pass. So let's just be very white. And so my parents' generation did that. Um, whereas now you're seeing these younger Asians who are much more race conscious and they're conscious of these type of like sociological um, kind of dynamics. So they're resisting it. But the point that professor, he stepped in it because he's basically saying, well, I like the assimilated minorities more than I do the unassimilated minorities. That's essentially what he ended up, that's really what it was at the end of the day. He was kind of this older guy who was kind of ranting about, I can't say half of these names of my, like my black students, you know? So he's kind of in a sense saying, why can't you assimilate like these Asian students have? And it's kind of a double insult from like a white perspective, because you're basically telling the Asian people like, hey, yeah, you guys are so like assimilated and docile and and manageable. We love it. And then he's telling the black population like, yeah, you guys are this is why you struggle. You're troublemakers and you refuse to assimilate. It's and so, yeah, as we it, for me, it's been a journey to just really become more conscious of these things. And and so that's that's another thing you'll see me kind of address is that anti-Asian racism has its own unique history and, and social dynamics attached to it. So for me, uh, when I think about what are ways that I experience racism, I've never worried about lynching, although recent, you know, crimes have become much more violent. But I have always experienced invisibility or um, kind of xenophobia, that whole uh, you've heard this a lot of times, but the, the microaggressions, it's like, I remember when I was a pharmacist in Michigan, uh, I, I remember I had a particularly difficult customer. He was a, a retired judge. He was really upset because I wouldn't do something for him because it, it would have been illegal for me to do it. But he just thought, well, I'm a retired judge. You, you can just refill that. I said, you don't have any refills. And I offer, I said, well, let me call your doctor and then I can get this done for you. He goes, yeah, but I want it now. And then I said, yeah, but I can't refill it until I get it approved. He said, well, the other pharmacist would have done it. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I, I, he, maybe he would have, but I just can't do that. You know, and he said, well, maybe that's where it is where you're from. But here we take care of our customers. You know, I've had to deal with that kind of stuff all my life. You know, it's this very subtle form of uh, othering. It's like, uh, you know, or people just say, Sam, you, you, your English is so good. And I'm like, Wow, I, I would hope so, because I came over when I was one. So if my English isn't good at this point, you know, um, but there's a layer to that even, because I used to take pride in having that the fact that people thought my English was really good. But here's the thing I'm learning. I have so much more appreciation for any time I hear someone speak English with an accent, because I realize that person speaking English as a second, maybe third or even fourth language. So 
why am I mocking this person when really I should be amazed that this person is like on their second or third language and they're doing all right. So I'm, I'm still learning, but that was, but that's kind of an example of what you face. Uh, the other one is invisibility, just being invisible in, in society. I just remember that growing up in high school, it was always just kind of like, I was always kind of that forgotten guy. You know, I had friends. I actually had a great high school experience. I didn't, I was one of the fortunate ones. When I talked to some of my Asian friends about my age, I'm 50 too. So, you know, I'm Gen X. I, 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 I'm so sad because I know so many people my age, Asians, who had a much worse high school experience, you know, school experience. They were actively mocked. They were actively attacked. I wasn't that. Like, I had a good circle of friends. I was involved in a lot of stuff in school. And, you know, people knew me, but I was also largely invisible, you know. And so um, at times that was kind of painful because it would just, you know, uh, it would manifest in different ways. Like one way is um, the whole effeminization or emasculation of Asian men. It's a real thing because like in high school, you know, you've been there. You you know that when you're at that age as an adolescent, you know, you're really kind of grown into you want to have this identity and, you know, I, I just remember how painful it was because you would hear even among like circles of friends, they would just be talking about like, oh, who would you date? Like, oh, well, this guy, this guy. And it was always like, well, what do you think of Sam? And it would always just be, nah, you could never date him. Like, and it was always just kind of this understanding that because I was Korean American, that I was just off the books, like when it came to any kind of real meaningful social interaction, you know? So it, that's kind of what I mean by like, just either invisibility or just even the emasculation thing. So anyway, yeah, those are just some of the things I'm realizing, like a lot of people are only starting to think about because of what happened in Atlanta, because now they're starting to see these uh, media outlets bring people on to talk about it. Uh, they're starting to share articles that have been out there for a while that address these things. So I'm thankful for that. But it's definitely, I feel like, a major area of agnosticism, at least regarding racism. I, I wonder if to, to sort of bring things full circle. I, sure. I, I see uh, one, one thing I've been thinking about lately, right, is that folks who are resistant to in, in conservative evangelicalism, resistant to conversations or, about justice, I find are the very same, same folks generally who tend to view the, the sort of moral universe as this, this hierarchical thing, right? And so you've got the same folks who seem to be not too troubled about like racism and misogyny, who talk a lot about like authority and submission as though that's like, that's morality, yes. right? Um, they're the same folks that are opposed to talk about justice, which has this kind of equalizing effect, right? So, so the, the idea that like, actually authority is not this like intrinsic Good. I mean, like, do we need to have like, you know, people like police officers to like people have to follow like traffic rules or we're going to have chaos. Yeah. It's a pragmatic thing. Right. Yeah. We got to have somebody. But but it, there's nothing like transcendently 
uh, or, or ontologically different about police officers, right? In right. terms of their authority, it's not, right. it doesn't have this like moral significance, right? Right. So, so yeah, what is that? What, what's your thinking about that, right? Like this, you've got this, this real watershed, I think, among evangelicals between those who think morality is about authority yes. and those who think that morality is really about justice and giving people what they're due. Sure. That, you know, I've, I've been following you on that thread whenever you post on that and stuff. I, I think you're spot on, first of all. Like, I, I love what you do when you engage on that because I think you're unearthing something that's absolutely legitimate. Part of that is going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about, I think there is this sort of unspoken or even un, there even, it may not even be conscious, but this awareness that kind of order is threatened if we start allowing these dialogues to go to some of these places regarding what is just. Like bring up reparations and see what happens. That's a great, um, that's a great kind of way to gauge the, the temperature in a room. Um, but I, I think the other thing is you're right. There is this sense in which, um, and I've seen other people talk about this much more eloquently, but I think the culture war, uh, whole idea of culture war is a misunderstanding based on an absolutely malformed kind of sociological political theology in evangelicalism. So um, the kingdom Jesus himself was very explicit that his kingdom was not of this world. Uh, when he was talking to Pilate, it was almost like he was trying to put Pilate at ease and just say, look, don't worry, I'm, I'll come for you late. At, at some point, you're going to deal with this. You'll be held accountable. But it's not today. And, and, and it's because Jesus fully understood, I'm such a big believer in the kingdom as what our hope is. It's not this personal salvation thing where, where Jesus dying on the cross is a ticket to heaven for me. It's that this is a king who loved his, his, of all people and so was willing to give his life so that we would now have a, an ability to be reconciled to the Father and then be taken into the kingdom he's building. And so the gospel to me is so much more full-formed than simply, oh, you have eternal life in heaven. I said, no, it's actually that now I'm part of a kingdom that will be on the new earth and that I will now be able to live under the rule of a king who finally gets it. You know, someone that I never will again have to wonder if he sees me, if he values me, and if he's going to be fair and if he's going to be caring. And so, you know, I think that if you have that kind of kingdom theology, it would help circumvent some of that culture war mentality, but because it's malformed. And I do think that's where we, you have to look at the history of evangelical revivalism, going all the way back to like maybe Dwight Moody, but even you could even argue maybe going back to Edwards and this idea that, um, you know, mass conversion is the essence of Christian kind of success. I, I, I feel like that's, it's not. I, I feel like the salvation event is very significant but it's the beginning, not the culmination of, of our faith experience. It should be what leads you into this new life as a kingdom citizen, as a follower of this king. And then you want to love what the king loves and you want to do what the king values. And um, that's where I feel like modern evangelicalism has lost its way. It's, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like if, if uh, salvation is the is just the culmination and sort of like, that's it. It's a, it, it leads you to wonder like, 
well, why, why are we still here? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. uh, if, 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 I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it seems like if we're still here, we, we should be doing something. Yes. Uh, other than other, like, yes, let's tell other people the good news and, and, sure. and, uh, you know, spread the gospel. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but like, it turns out when, when those people come into relationship with Christ, they don't just sort of like go to heaven immediately either. Like we're all right. just still here. So there seems to be, seems to be something else that we should be yes. up to. No, absolutely agree. Um, and in fact, I think what I, I've, I've kind of com- come to talk about that in my own like conversations as it's the, it's the half commission. So I think what the Great Commission did was it got truncated in evangelical kind of rhetoric and culture. We are so tuned in to make disciples of all nations. So I am convinced that if I were to go out onto campus right now here at this really major evangelical seminary and ask students, what's the whole Great Commission? They would, I, I, I think nine in 10 would tell me, make, make disciples of all nations. And I'm wondering if even five out of 10 would be able to say, and teach them to obey everything I commanded or taught you. Mm. I think that second part gets absolutely washed out so often because we've made the salvation. So revivalism just makes so much of the salvation event that we completely forgot that actually there's an actual telos to the salvation um, event. It's, it's to create a new body of kingdom citizens who are now committed to learning the teachings of the king and then passing on the teachings of the king, but also doing the teachings of the king. Yeah, it's a very it's, anemic form of discipleship that I see. I wonder if it's because and teach them to do everything I've commanded. Uh, that, that doesn't fit on the t-shirt, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not good for merch. You're right. Right. Like it, it, the Yeti mug would have to be the big one. You wouldn't be able to get it on like a small Yeti mug, right? That's right. You know, I would just say on a side note, just I, I do have this background as a pharmacist, which is really funny because I do get the occasional pushback sometimes when I post about COVID. And I'll get people saying like, oh, you need to stay in your lane. And I'm just like, well, I have a PharmD from Michigan, you know, I'm and I've been in oncology pharmacy. Right. Right. And so I think people are surprised because they don't, I guess they just don't expect that that's part of the package. So, but yeah, I, I just, I will just say on a side note that when people say, well, you know, Sam, why are you so worried about this stuff? Like, is it really that important? And up until last year, I would have maybe not been able to say this, but now I could say, well, it's a matter of life and death, not only for minorities now, because um, obviously minorities have always known this, like a malformed theology is what leads to a lot of these um, terrible killings and, and deaths, uh, just a, a terrible theology of authority, like you said, um, uh, just this preoccupation with culture war, how we're supposed to win the culture um, it leads to like this terrible political theology and engagement. You know, our kingdom's not of this world. So our engagement here should be to be active in our communities as part of this, the, the community we live in and to be those who uh, basically love the Lord and love our neighbors. And that includes wanting to see justice done for that quartet. It's, it's Deuteronomy 10, it's Zechariah 7, 8, it's Leviticus, you know, but instead, what it's become is like we're in a war, you know, and so we, we're just 
we got to, and then the war kind of rhetoric breeds like these dispositions within our circles of hostility, of aggression, um, of kind of oppositional, you know, type of disposition. So, yeah, I think what I would like to see is just a, a better understanding that discipleship is not about creating more warriors. It, it's really about creating more kingdom citizens who are like their king, humble, and who are like their king, loving of others, and who are like their king, just, you know. And, um, and where I see this painfully in this last year is COVID. The way evangelicals have actually helped prolong the pandemic in some places by contributing to the spread of it even now, when I see the data on like vaccine hesitancy, for example, it the, the story that it's like the black populations that's vaccine hesitant is not true. The actual data is showing that there is vaccine hesitancy in every single like demographic, but the worst is like white Trump supporters. Like that's been demonstrated in some pretty reliable like media resources. So I'm looking at that and I'm realizing our bad theology and our bad discipleship does have life and death significance. We're going to look back someday in God's presence, and I, I am convinced we're going to find that some of these churches and some of these act like active like Trump supporters who are really anti-mask, anti-vaccine, anti-safety measures are going to have some blood on their hands because you will you can't have over five hundred thousand deaths in this country and not at least trace some of that to institutions and groups who just refuse to look out for their neighbors. So I, I got vaccinated and yet I still wear my mask pretty faithfully everywhere I go in public. And it's because I actually know as a healthcare professional, I have this, I have a pretty basic knowledge of virology that I, I may not be in danger of getting COVID at this point, um, but I can still carry the virus. And so if I'm just really careless about my interactions in public, I could still possibly spread it to someone else. And, and I've had people ask like, wait, why are you wearing your mask? You know, even here, like sometimes when I'm out in the office and stuff, interacting with people, I'm wearing my mask. And they, I think I get looked at a little bit as, oh, he's just kind of paranoid. And, I, and it, it grieves me that something as basic as putting a piece of equipment over your face to protect others largely has been so anathema to so many in our Christian circles. Like, I'm not asking you to go out and get a surgical procedure to make you less likely to spread the, the virus. I'm not asking you to go out and completely sacrifice your entire way of life. I'm not actually pro shutdown. I think it is a way to manage the virus and New Zealand and other countries have shown it is effective. But I do get the cries of like the business people and the people who are worried about their livelihoods. I get the concern over children who are now a year on without normal like social interactions. But my point has always been, if you look at a lot of the Asian nations who have fairly controlled it well, the common denominator wasn't lockdown. It was actually just really religious masking, contact tracing and testing. Yep. And I look at America and with all the resources we have, it's a travesty that we did not have like easy testing in place earlier than we did. In fact, I'm still convinced that we, we should have had like test kits that you can go to Walmart and buy. Like the resources are there. It's just the will is not. 
I, I say all that, that this pandemic has revealed to me um, that kind of at the intersection of where I am as someone who has a background in medical, in medical field, and then someone who has a living in like biblical studies and, and you know, being in ministry, it's heartbreaking. It really is an incredibly damning testimony about where the heart of so many um, white evangelicals are that they've made this their hill to die on. So, yeah, yeah, they didn't. Even, the The language that a lot of them have used to to explain their position on things like masking is not even like it doesn't even make sense, right? Because right. they're framing it in terms of this like individualism, like, well, yeah. you know, you know. Uh, basically individual liberty right like yeah. about wearing masks it's like no 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 no. it's not it's not because they're like you know i'm not scared but if you're scared i understand no 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 the mask isn't for you dude the mask <laughs> is for everybody right. else and 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 one of the things uh one of the areas where this was i i really sort of felt the absence of where you where the church uh could have been I'm, i mean of course conservative evangelical churches right where the church could have been a leader was it was sort of at a certain point awkward to hear medical professionals on television trying to explain like normative claims about why you should wear a mask yeah. because like that's not their job right yeah. their, their job right. is to explain the science right. and then you just sort of like you go to your doctor and your doctor says hey you should take this cholesterol medic or medication because your mm -hmm. cholesterol is high or whatever you say like no right. i don't want to do it like i'm not gonna argue with you but you say like right. okay i've explained to you what's going on and then it's yeah. kind of up to you, right? And you see, it's sort of left to the medical professionals to explain why people should wear masks and they're kind of at a loss, right? Because yeah. they can explain the science. And hey, folks, that's where, like, I don't know, the church could pick up the baton and say like, hey, here are these obligations that you have to everyone else. So given that this is the state of, uh, you know, the science of public health and medicine, it kind of seems like this is what we should do. And instead, folks in the church are like, no. I don't want to wear masks. I'm not scared. Like yeah. what? Yeah. And here's where this is. Um, I think it, it, it reveals a troubling kind of subtext to all this is I've never seen a biblical argument. So for a people who are so committed to biblicism and, and a high view of scripture, their arguments are purely political. I, I think the, the biggest uh, best indicator of where someone falls on masks is if you can ask them what they think of Trump you can almost to like 99% accuracy predict what their view is gonna be regarding masks and vaccines. So it's not even that conservative evangelicals are being kind of oppositional here based on a theological position. It's purely socio-political. It's, it's where they are in the culture, so who their cultural circles are, and it's who they are politically. That to me is troubling, it's that um, I can show you some texts in the scriptures that I think speak to this about care for the neighbor and communal kind of thinking. And yet that's going to be trumped, pun intended, by what their political allegiances are. So that's, to me, that was a very discouraging aspect of this past year was to just see in, in real time it play out. Like, I think we all had our suspicions, especially if you've been more on the progressive side of the Christian kind of sphere, you've kind of always suspected that was the case. But I think to see it, because um, 2016 to 2018 gave us a lot of broad data, <laughs> you know, to kind of chew on. But I think 2020, like, was the, was where it's like, 
wow, you know, now it's dramatically kind of out there for us all to see. So. Where do you think we go from here? And that you, you could take that in any direction you want. I mean, like, wh where would you strategically, right? Like folks who get it, where do you see us taking things from here in terms of engage? Like, do we try to bring as many folks along with us as we can? Do we just kind of say like, well, we're just going to go out and do the work? Like, what, what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you think? Man, that's a, that's a great question. It's kind of personal for me too, because in a way it speaks to how I view myself where I am, you know, because I think... And I'm going to say this, and I hope it doesn't come across as a cop-out, but I really do think that there are legitimate places for some to stay and, and really try to be, a, um, be a, a gentle but firm, you know, influence, like from within a lot of these circles and institutions. I also think it's absolutely legitimate for some to take the leave loud approach as we're seeing recently, or some to take more like the deconstructing, reconstructing approach that some are taking. So I don't, I don't begrudge anyone whatever their path is. I, I think we need both, honestly. I do think I have a high degree of respect for those who have kind of gone out and said, I'm done with evangelicalism and I totally get it, uh, whether it's a minority or a woman or both. I understand the tiredness, the exhaustion. So I, I completely respect that path. And I've considered it at times myself. But I also respect the ones who want to stick around and say, I, I still think there's things we can do from within to bring about real change. Uh, I think the change I'm going to work for in my personal uh, kind of path is, is going to be the harder because it's going to be slower, more incremental. Um, and it's going to require more banging your head against some walls. Um, but I do think there's value, and here's why. I, I, don't, I think it's really discouraging if you only look at the institutional leadership level of all of these discussions. The boards, the um, executives of like these seminaries and these churches, yeah, at that level, there's a lot of discouragement, absolutely legitimate discouragement, because I see who's the, the, the platformed leaders and voices and the ones who have the real authority and the ones who control the purse strings. They're too much in the water for many to be able to see what they're struggling with as far as nationalism and white supremacy. But where I see the hope is at the level of the students and some of the more uh, at the faculty level. There are good folks who get it, who are here. Um, and when I look at them, I'm so thankful for them. So I feel like if I were to leave a place like um, Dow Seminary, then what happens to that student who's really wrestling with these questions and wants to talk about it and wants to have some, you know, good, hard conversations about their own kind of re reckoning with their own history and their own past. So I, I, I feel like I, I respect those who stay because they can be there for those folks. Because um, not everyone who comes to any seminary or Bible college is necessarily the poster child for that school. You'd be surprised at the diversity of the people who will come to a school like this. 
And it's and, and many times what you'll find is when you ask someone who is a bit of an outlier, well, how'd you end up here? You don't strike me as a, a, a typical student for this type of school. And they'll, often they'll say, well, there's a particular program or there's a particular professor or there's a particular aspect of your school that I don't agree with other things, but that was valuable enough for me to come and be there. And so I think there is this uh, kind of groundswell where you see students and faculty like that. And so I don't want to completely vacate these spaces if, if we're kind of in this, you know, the same boat that you and I kind of find ourselves in. So I think there's value to that. But again, completely understand those who have reached a point where maybe it's trauma, maybe it's just for their own personal health, they can no longer stay. And I think that's a very valid way to go. So I think to answer your question to close, um, I think there's gonna, what you're gonna see is, I think you're gonna both see several things. I think you're gonna see a part of evangelicalism push just further right and just keep going. And they're gonna just uh, harden. They're gonna become more and more kind of crystallized into what they really are. Um, kind of a Christian nationalist, um, conservative politically movement. But I do think what you're going to see is you're going to start to see kind of like this progressive evangelicalism that will emerge. Now, they may not use the term evangelicalism, um, but I've heard folks use things like evangelical adjacent or orthodox, but not evangelical. But when I hear those things and I look at what they say and what they do, I realize they're really pretty much brothers and sisters. They just have had it with the label. And that's kind of where I am too. And so I think among those, you're gonna see some who leave completely and then others who kind of stay, but are, are very intentional about wanting to be kind of a salt in that, you know, and light in that circle. And then finally, you're gonna have just others who just completely go outside of orthodoxy because at some point, They've just really broken by the, the terrible religious experiences and things like that. And I, I hate to see some of those folks go the way they go, but I also can understand <clears throat> how the damage of all these generations of, of malformed theology and engagement can do that. So um, I, see, I see like different paths, but my hope is that the kind of that middle ground will grow and just grow stronger over time. That what you'll see is a real coalescing of folks who are like, to me, I, I feel like I'd love to see a re, kind of like a renaissance of that black church spirit where, yeah, we're, we're not gonna give up on our faith because this is real to us. And this is, you know, there are orthodox aspects of our faith that were never tainted by all this. But we're also not going to just completely give in to your political, social, you know, kind of hegemony and, 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 you know, like agendas. And we are going to be in a place where we can say, hey, we're going to march. We're going to enact new just laws and we're going to lobby politically. We're going to lobby in our communities because we are we have such a high view of scripture and because we love Jesus so much. So. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Scott. And I, I just, I'm glad I could kind of get to meet up with you a little bit now. And because like I said, I've always enjoyed just following you on social media, just the engagement. Thanks for doing what you do. Like, and I just, I'm glad we are on Twitter together and I can follow what you're doing and, and dialogue with that here and there. So 
Yeah. Thanks for having me on too. I just really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely.